show. I did a weird thing, then you did a weird thing. Weird in a way that was not my weird. We're supposed to exercise and eat healthy food and drink water. Leave me alone. I'm not going to bed at the same time every night. Is this show killing people? Bad, 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 bad. Something good has to be coming. I'm so proud of us. Well, if you have enough peanuts, it should just bring harmony, right? I have so many questions right off the bat. For those of you who are like, my God, Michelle, you're too much. Chill out. It's McDonald's fault. When will my friend die? When will my friend die? Challenge. Both of my eyes are twitching. This is my energy level. Just, we're just gonna take a little chill today, everybody. Chill. Got my little my my sand art. I'm just gonna watch the sand fall. Welcome to Angriement. Angriement. Hello, (laughs) hello, (laughs) and welcome to Angriement. I'm Catherine, and I'm Michelle. And this is our podcast increment where we bring you three things. Those three things are a weird thing, a pop culture thing, and a research thing. Then we take all those things, <laughs> we work them together into an aphorism or a flight of fancy. <laughs> I don't think that's what it is. Why did my brain put that there? Um, what we call a fortune cookie that you can uh, meditate on. Yeah, and- reflect on that with your sand art. So, this is episode 42. You go first. I go first. Yes. Actually, maybe we should start with our surprise. Yes, that's, that'll get the energy up. That's yes. better. Okay, let's start with the surprise. Michelle, 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 what? Michelle. What? Guess what we have? Guess what we have? What do we have? What do we have? A grab bag. Yay! You know that means you have to send out your PowerPoint, right? <gasps> Did you? Uh, yeah, you get. Hey, grab bag guest, you get my PowerPoint. Do you even want my PowerPoint? It's the <laughs> only reason I'm here. <laughs> yes. One one more person who knows the secret of the PowerPoint. I'll have to. Yeah, I will send it out. We'll, it will be a very exclusive club. Thank mm-hmm. you. It's a pretty good PowerPoint. I think that it has that yeah. potential. It has that power? That's the point. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Sorry to our grab bag guests. Okay, so we have a grab bag, and we're gonna let you uh, let you start. Yeah. Off. Take it away. What, what category Wait, well, be- is your grab bag? Well, it, it all depends. <laughs> That's how ours are too. Unless you, you sound it like us. Be, it could be a weird thing. It could be research. It could even have tangential connections to pop culture. Okay. But first, I want to give you both a quiz. Okay, ready? One. 
When Daniel Boone cleared the Cumberland Gap to make the Wilderness Road, where was he going? I feel like my classes, my American history classes have failed me. He was going, he was going to the West. (laughs) Sort of, yes. California. A little more specific. To San Diego. Nope. Transylvania. Question number two. What state is Illinois' first capital located? I mean, I feel like I can't say Illinois, but I feel like that is the only answer. I'm going to go with Indiana. Answer is Missouri. Huh. Three. I mean, they're close. Is Illinois west of the Mississippi River? Uh, No. No? It's east. I want to say no, that it is east. I cross it when I go to Illinois, headed east. Yes, it is west of the Mississippi River. And number four, it's the only chance for you to rehabilitate yourself as educated women. Oof. The only chance. The only, only chance. In a decade and a half, you have left to live. Okay. Okay. What is the westernmost engagement in the Revolutionary War? That's the American Revolutionary War. Western most engagement. So I like, feel like Missouri and Illinois come up a lot, and I'm gonna say in the Revolutionary War, it can't be that because they weren't. Because oh yeah, why 13, would it be out there? Yeah, Revolutionary. The, Talking 1700s. Yeah, because there's only the 13 colonies. Virginia. Oh, hot no. Because For... West Virginia didn't exist yet, right? It was just Virginia, but doesn't it go pretty? I will put you out of your misery. Okay. Please. The answer is Kaskaskia, Illinois, which lies west of the Mississippi and was Illinois' first state capital. Which is actually then Missouri. So I said, I said Missouri. (laughs) (laughs) It swung all the way around and made me right. Here's the weird thing at the time of the revolution, it was not in Missouri, it was still in Illinois. Because so, the Mississippi River changed course. Oh. So, oh. Yes, this, this is a very weird place. So if you want to get to Kaskaskia, Kaskaskia, Illinois, the only way to get to it is through Missouri. So how do all these things connect? How do well, they all connect? Did they? Going back to Transylvania, there was a guy named Richard Henderson who bought parts of Kentucky and Tennessee from the Cherokee. And he was going to create his own state called Transylvania. Only the Cherokee really didn't own it. There were three other tribes that used it as hunting grounds. And so there was a real fight there. And a guy named George Rogers Clark, who was from Virginia, and the uh, older brother of William Clark from Lewis and Clark fame, didn't like this. Daniel Boone, by the way, was the surveyor for the Transylvania Company. And so he decided he was going to talk to Patrick Henry, yes, the Patrick Henry, to give him some money in a secret mission to take the western outposts of the British, then colony of the province of Quebec, known as Illinois County. So he convinced them to give him some folks to go and attack the British. Only it was so crazy to do that that he couldn't tell his men where they were going or why they were going. <laughs> Always a recipe for excellent strategy. And he said, hey, guess what, guys? We're going to attack the British. And uh, with only about 150 to 200 people. 
and several of them wanted, wanted to leave. So they, he finally convinced them to go. And so he attacked Kaskaskia. Uh, but at this time, most of the people in Illinois were French. And the French had recently ceded this area to the British. And of course, the French and the British don't like each other. So a uh, Jesuit priest uh, who didn't like the British rolled over Kaskaskia for the Americans and told the townspeople to support the Americans because coincidentally at that same time, France had declared that it was coming into the war on the side of the United States. So he took Kaskaskia without firing a shot and also the town of Cahokia without firing a shot. And then he turned around and attacked Vincennes and also had them surrender. Great, yay! But there was a guy named Hamilton up there. Michelle Chagrin, no, not yet. <laughs> well, actually, George Rogers Clark was a really bad guy. So I'll tell you about that a little bit later. But uh, so Hamilton's up in Detroit. He's a British guy and said, oh, this can't go on. So he goes down and he attacks Vincennes. And of course, he by the time he gets there, he has 500 men. Most of them were Native Americans. And so the newly uh, American-backed townspeople said, uh-oh, we really like the British. <laughs> So they rolled over and surrendered to Hamilton. Hamilton was going to uh, attack Clark come spring. And so Clark said, whoops, I'm going to go attack him now in February. And you both probably know how February is in uh, the area. Well, it was a mild winter, so all the rivers were flooded. Oh. So he couldn't take the river to get to Vincennes, Indiana. And so they marched across bottomland in water up to their necks at times. There's a story where they had to float the drummer boy on his drum to go to go there. And they ran out of food two days before they got there. So picture all these men, waist deep in water, no food, freezing. And they just said, we're not going to go any further. <laughs> this, this is crazy. And so how do you respond to people who don't want to go someplace? You go um. nuts. Oh, so George Rogers Clark just is that what you do? It... Himself and dashed into the river and said, "Come on!" And so all his men said, "Well, we can starve here. We'll go with that nut." So they went with the nut, and they got there. <laughs> Outside of Vincennes, <laughs> there was a fort there called uh, Fort Beckerville, where the British were, and George Rogers Clark had his men march around as if there were a whole bunch of them with flags, and there weren't very many people there. Uh, there was trench warfare. They dug a trench to the fort, started shooting into it. General Hamilton thought there was a whole bunch of people. and But he wouldn't surrender because he's a British uh, hardcore guy. And then uh, George Rogers Clark had captured some Native Americans who were fighting for the British. And so to scare the bejesus out of the British, he brutally murdered them with inside of the, the walls of the, uh, the fort and then started a barrage and shooting up the fort. And so the... Uh, British guy surrendered and sends, he comes out, hands the sword to uh, George Rogers Clark and says, okay, you can march the rest of your men into the, into the fort. <laughs> Clark says, this is all the men I have. <laughs> and so the Hamilton was very disturbed by that. He gets ships off. Yeah. So my last trivia question is who won the most ground for uh, the new British, the new American, uh, the country in the revolutionary war? I'm guessing it's this crazy guy. Yeah, yeah. the guy, Gunpowder Lake Man. Yeah, that's right. George Rogers Clark. <laughs> I'm sure you would appreciate did, that. Though, it's debatable. Yeah, but because of what he did, um, the entire Northwest Territory 
was ceded by the British to the new American uh, country, which doubled the size from the original 13 colonies. And Illinois became a county of uh, Virginia. As so, Virginia so Virginia was the westmost of the colonies? Michelle's like, so I was I, technically I was, correct. I, I, my logic was in, this, in a sound place. If, if you discount <laughs> Transylvania, because it took an act to the Virginia legislature to say, no, no, Mr. Henderson, no, no, no. You don't actually. But Michelle, actually this is why we're this is why we're such a good team, Michelle, because logically you were correct, and I got us to just the illogical correct answer <laughs> through right. pure illogic. Together, we can get most things. Right. Well, here's the curveball <laughs> to popular culture. You know the Broadway play Hamilton. Yeah, of course, all those of course. And and the interaction between Hamilton and Jefferson and Washington in the cabinet. Well, not only did Jefferson enslave his own children, but he also hated Native Americans. And he would quote George Rogers Clark for saying, hey, we've got to attack the Indians. And so there was a lot of Western conflict, including George Rogers Clark uh, with Native Americans in the West. And after all these conflicts, George Rogers Clark, because he spent his own money on all these engagements and wasn't reimbursed by Pat, uh, Patrick Henry, uh, went broke, so he became a general in the French Napoleonic army. And he was going to capture St. Louis and New Orleans for the French from Spain, who occupied those areas then. But Washington told him, nope, we're not going to have any American citizen affect our neutrality between the Spanish and the French, so you can't do it. And uh, and if you do, I'm going to send man Anthony Wayne after you to, to stop you. So that that ended that. So he started, uh, became a, a director of the Indiana Canal Company. And why do, would you say the Indiana Canal Company is an important um, popular culture thing? Well, who else was on the board? Aaron Burr. Sir. Aaron Burr, sir. Burr, sir. Yes, right. <laughs> Washington, Hamilton, and George Rogers Clark all had this, this connection. Of course, Aaron Burr was tried for treason. And because of that, that whole Indiana Canal Company folded, but uh, huh. does hopefully tend to take down the businesses of the treasonous former. One would think, maybe. Well, Aaron Burr actually was found not guilty. He was not treasonous. I think, but he, he wanted just... to set up a separate country in Mexico. Aaron Burr, just like Henderson, wanted to set up a separate country in Transylvania. Really? So you know, we always talk about our founding fathers, all these you know people signing the Declaration of Independence. But there were just a bunch of wild, crazy people out there in the West, and Virginia is doing wild and crazy, stupid things. And yeah. as a result of it, the great United States of America came into being. So that makes sense. The tracks. I read a book with my um, middle schoolers about the history of sugar and learned a whole bunch of stuff that I did not know. And one of it was about, like, because uh, Napoleon was so obsessed with getting the Mississippi River route and Louisiana because Louisiana is one of the only places that in the United States where you can grow cane sugar. And so he was trying to tap into the sugar trade. But part of the reason that like his efforts ultimately were not being backed anymore is because there was the invention of beet sugar that you could, could be made from other sources. And so having control of just sugar cane was not as important anymore because it wasn't a monopoly on like how to produce sugar. I would say that's just an after the fact justification because George Rogers Clark got pulled off the job. It's a sugar cover up. <laughs> sugar right. cover up. Just covered in sugar. 
It's sugarcoating history. <laughs> but there's a whole bunch of more colorful things about this this guy that nobody really understands. As I said, his younger brother was uh, William Clark, who did Lewis and Clark. Um, he had brothers who did strange things. Yeah. What What but, was What was the parenting philosophy in that house? Yeah. That, that produced some interesting. Results. I don't know. He actually went to uh, school with uh, James Madison. And, but then he led these group of Kentuckians called the Long Knives, basically killing anybody who didn't let them settle in the land that they wanted to settle in, even though it was owned by other people. Well, they picked a good name. Yeah. So that was my weird thing. And that is the town, village, capital, uh, mysterious place of Kaskaskia, which was cursed, actually. So after these happenings, it was cursed. So no, all, before. And they before, all came into before. Oh. He cursed them instead. Is... Your dead will be risen and your town will be wiped out and the altars of your church will be destroyed. And yeah, all that happened with the floods. So, yeah, were you going to ask where is it like geographically? Where is Cascassia? Yeah. Like in it's along the Mississippi, I'm assuming, yes, but it's, where it's in a, like in relation to St. Louis. Okay, if you know the town of Chester and you do know the town of Chester because that's where Popeye is from. And if you drive through the town of Chester, you will see all kinds of statues of characters from Popeye. What? You know, yes. I did not know this. This was you. Yes, I, to me, you have buried the lead here. Yeah. The Popeye yeah. is from Missouri. <laughs> no, Illinois, Chester, Illinois. Oh, so, Illinois. The sailor so, man. The yes, sa yes. like that sails the seas. They crack um, and eat spinach. <laughs> yep. Michelle, seeing you go with your face so confused. The sailor man is the highlight of my day, not me. Like and the ocean. It's north of Metropolis, which is the home of who? See, I always, I always Superman. thought he lived in a. Superman, I, right? I always thought he lived in a garbage can. Superman? Isn't that the song? No, Popeye. Popeye, oh. Popeye the sailor man. I live in a garbage can. I'm starting to the finish because I ate too much spinach. Is that not? No, no. Sorry, no. I'm sorry. I blew over. Where is Superman from? Metropolis. Metropolis, which is further south and one of the other areas that George Rogers Clark went to. He actually I also went... founded Louisville, Kentucky. Sorry. Yeah. I'm so just, I'm just that was my question. Yeah. It is south of St. Louis. It's um north of Metropolis. It is west of Vincennes. So and if you really want to get localized, it's near St. Mary's, Missouri. Okay. No, I know St. Mary's. Interesting. I have to go and drive and look at Popeye statues. I really want to do that very, very much. And I can't believe I haven't done that being from Missouri. Yes. Which is close to, to Illinois. Do, what you need to do is get off the interstates and drive the back roads of America because you will be endlessly surprised, amused, and educated. That's how you song. learned about the man Other who shot actions. the man who shot Lincoln. Yeah, it is. Remember, right. there was a a hole, right? Wasn't there like a yep. yeah, yeah? There was a marker and, by his hole. <laughs> right. And have you ever visited the hula hoop tree in Iowa? No. What's a hula hoop tree? The hula hoop tree. It's very amazing. You drive up to this tree. It's a big old cottonwood tree out in the middle of nowhere. Literally the middle of nowhere. No houses around. And this tree, which is mostly dead is covered with thousands of colorful hula hoops. Thousands. That it represents people who have either survived cancer and threw a hula hoop up there, or in honor of someone who succumbed to cancer, a family throws a hula hoop up there. Oh, man. It's just gorgeous. And below the hula hoop tree, 
someone leaves painted rocks as artwork for you to pick up and hopefully leave something else. So it's a little uh, art gallery that you would not normally expect, um, going back to one of your earlier programs. Um, and it's very wonderful. Those are the things you encounter on your way to the birthplace of Captain Kirk. I will say that my driving around the back roads of Missouri have not brought me such wonderful encounters. So I feel like I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> I feel like I've heard about some of this, uh, this guest's bad encounters and this is getting there. There's good and bad. And yes, yes. You feel like, you feel like maybe this is a sugar coated history too. <gasps> sugar coated history. Yes. I feel like yes. I see George a pre-connection with sugar coating. a nice man. And if you're a native American, you do not have kind thoughts about this man. Yeah. No. No. So it was very brutal in a brutal time. Well, that was my grab bag, and Thank which you. I done solely to get my PowerPoint. I will send so, you the PowerPoint. 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 Thank you very much. Thank you I'm, so much. Okay. I'm gonna see how close the hula hoop tree is to me because I that sounds fun. Yes, you should. Yeah. Okay, good night. Okay. Bye. Night, thanks. thanks for having me. geography a little bit of history a little bit of mind bending a little bit of pop quiz which i wasn't prepared for so um and i'm gonna follow it up with my weird thing which is partially the actual fact i'm about to tell you and then also just the the weird way that it keeps popping up on the internet in regular intervals and i just find that really fascinating too um, so I missed this the first time it was popular. You may have already heard it because um, when I went to go research it, it was really interesting to see that like every year it comes back up and it's not really a seasonal thing. So I don't know what makes it come back up. But the article oh. I'm currently telling you about is from Mental Floss in 2018 and it is titled Why Tigers Find Calvin Klein's Obsession for Men Cologne So Irresistible. <laughs> I have not heard of this. Oh, I am excited. This is an animal fact and it's super weird. Oh, this is my happy place for weird things. So in case you weren't aware, Calvin Klein's Obsession for Men was released in 1986. So it's been around quite a while. It is used frequently in central India to lure dangerous tigers out of the jungle. In fact, it is so good at luring tigers that people who are trying to like photograph them will just cover their camera in Calvin Klein's obsession oh. for men because the tigers will come to it and the way that I learned about this fact is that somebody was like I don't I'm in so many like silly meme groups and like explain the joke to me groups that I just I love them I've, I've mentioned that on here before and one of them was like oh I didn't think I'd ever get to share this very niche meme that I made and it was like a capybara or some kind of a taper one of those big I know those are not the same thing I just can't remember which one it was in this meme that I saw they were I can't remember the exact details but it was like that's a that's a really great field you have there it would be a shame if somebody sprayed it with Calvin Klein's obsession for men because (laughs) they had learned from one of their friends who was a researcher in South America 
uh, which I also realize is not central India. I want you all to know that I know the difference between a capybara and a taper and different continents on the planet. Um, we but- have good listeners who will correct you, pronunciation, <laughs> yes. et cetera. I, I appreciate it. So yeah, we need that disclaimer. I need you to know I know. <laughs> And um, so th- they were talking about how they, in their research, would spray the fields with Calvin Klein's obsession to lure the tigers and keep the herbivores away so that they wouldn't eat the plants because they'd be scared of the tigers. <laughs> this is, I don't know how people originally found out about this, but apparently- I feel like it was, n- I, I just keep picturing tragedy of someone who's like, I got a new cologne. <laughs> why are all the tigers on me those calvin klein ads from like you know the 90s that we love she was a fever from which i will never recover all heat and hunger she inflamed my senses save me and when she had devoured my very soul please when i had nothing left to surrender she abandoned me to the wreckage of myself smile in the kingdom of passion the ruler is obsession calvin klein's obsession oh the smell of it so according to this mental floss article the secret to the sense seductiveness which i I like this idea that we're out seducing the tigers is (laughs) and i might be pronouncing this wrong listeners you can correct me i think it's civetone c-i-v-e-t-o-n-e um, a pheromone that's se- secreted by small carnivorous mammals called civets. Aren't those the ones? Civets. That, those are the, ones that poop the coffee the, beans. The really expensive coffee beans, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that was a weird thing once, wasn't it? I don't know. It's maybe it's not a weird thing in the world. It but... is a weird thing, and so it's used in many musky colognes. Um, well, then it's probably civetone, like like a yeah, civet. like a civet. Civetone. These four animals, like, like, just let me live. You always take Why my- are we so <laughs> horny for these animals? That's not the right word. Flights of fancy and horny. What is my brain doing? Why do we like their excretion so much? Right. Like, let me collect your pheromones to put in cologne. Ooh. Let me collect your poop to turn into so coffee. Like, I bet the civets are like, those humans have some. Some weird. Weird. <laughs> they need to work that out. Civetone used to be scraped from a civet's perennial glands, which less glamorously are situated near the animal's anus. But today, most civetones are synthetic. So, okay, good, good. Tig- so we've we're, we're not harassing the civets to get there. Good, good. What pheromones. is wrong with us? Right? How did that get discovered? Ooh, ooh, I love the way this civet's butt smells. Oh, rub it all over me. <laughs> Um, I just like this sentence. When big cats like tigers catch a whiff of civetone, they go crazy and bask in the scent. It's just imagine. So Aww. it's not just us. It's also the tigers. This is what we have yeah. in common. Um, they think that it is related to their, their drive for territorial marking and that they want to like mark their scent to compete with the territorial marking of it. But they will like put the cologne all over cameras and then the tigers will come and do all kinds of cute things that they can get pictures of, right? Um, they also use it in zoos as part of their animal enrichment programs because it's kind of like catnip, right? That like they can Aww. get them to be playful and rub all over and rub their faces on it. Um, and so that's been one of the uses for it. And Calvin Klein for 
obsession for women was not as good. It has to be the obsession for men to get the maximum response. Um, and yeah, that's that's my weird thing that Calvin. Oh, and my other weird thing is, is like this article came out in 2018. Somebody else picked it up in like 2020. Somebody else picked it up again in like 2021. And then I just saw it come up again somewhere. So it's like we keep. It's, it's like this fact is being learned in in like an outward ripple. So like there's a group of people who knew about it enough, but, and then, you know, what do you do with that information? doesn't mean a whole lot. And then someone picks it up and it ripples out again. No, I've been noticing that more and more and more where something I'm like, didn't I see that four years ago, three years ago? And it's having a moment again where this just keeps popping up. The internet makes time really weird. Yeah. And don't you feel like you've learned it? Like, I don't know. I feel like there's something natural about wanting to feel like you learned a thing when everyone else learned a thing, like that we are in it together, right? Yeah. That this like shared knowledge that was like, it's fine for, for me to know that the scientists knew about it before me. But once it's like oh, going yeah. public, I like to feel like I'm in the the public know, right? Like, oh, the, no. the public of which I am a part learned this in 2018, but I did Where was I? Yeah. It's kind of a nerd thing. Yeah. Like, why were you all I... talking about- tiger's obsession with obsession and not informing me it's an obsession 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 <laughs> I love that. oh that's at it. least it's not ck1 because i remember you and i bought that terrible at maurice's it was like a top coat of nail polish that was supposed to smell like perfume and we always had the ck1 perfume nail polish top coat which really just smelled like nail polish yeah with some scent but do you remember that the gap fresh grass was it the gap oh wait what Catherine has left everyone i'm alone i've been abandoned oh oh yeah back what where did you get that um i have what michelle is beholding is the gap grass full-size bottle perfume which is not made anymore hasn't been made since like what we were in high school. Yeah, no, that was for because you had a tiny little sampler bottle of it, and that was like the last one, and we couldn't yeah. get it anywhere else. And we used to just like just smell the tiny remnants of it because it wouldn't spray anymore. My mother found this at a Gap outlet store, and it is one of my most prized possessions. I'll never open it. Maybe on my deathbed, I'll say, "It's time, just cover me, with cover it. me just, in the," and then we'll then we'll discover that. Me over the head with it like a ship with a bottle and i'll we'll be discover that some other animal we didn't know about is <gasps> obsessed with it you'll just be Ooh. covered in like awesome happy bears oh, oh happy bears i mean it should be squirrels that's what i would want it to be but happy bears can come and maul me to death as well <laughs> no that's how i would i would like to go in old age Right before I would die naturally, I want to be mauled by capybaras who love gaps grass. Gap perfume mauled by capybaras. The head conk will be good because I'll be unconscious. <laughs> but my my relatives and loved ones will have that that image with them the rest of their lives. It's making me think about that scene in Atlanta where she goes to the <laughs> the funeral. The funeral. <laughs> Tupac. It was Tupac, right? <laughs> Tupac's funeral. <laughs> oh okay so (laughs) we've gone way off the rails already i mean what are you gonna do my weird thing is very um effluvious 
and all over the place have been wanting to talk with you about books for a long time. Yes, no, so, I, Catherine and I keep having text conversations and we'll get to a question. She'll be like, I can't answer that. <laughs> like, <what? laughs> I can't I'm talk to you about that it. yet. <laughs> saving it for the pod. It might be a bit of a letdown, um, but any books you want to talk about now, here's the time. So I'm going to start this off with big shout out to Subterranean Books in St. Louis. I, over Christmas break, when I was in Missouri, went to Subterranean Books and they had those kind of blind date with a book thing, right? They had them wrapped up like Christmas packages and they had little, you know, what the book was about, but not saying what the book was. And I was so drawn to one of those that I bought the book and it was just the best experience ever. It was a book I had never heard of. And it's now, if pressed, probably my favorite book I've ever read. What? Yeah, in this moment. That might change. But... Right, right. That's a fluid that's a fluid thing, but what book but is this? I... But the book is called Notable American Women, and it's by Ben Marcus. And I have never, and I also don't know if I can recommend this book. <laughs> I think um, I loved it. I don't know. It was a reading experience unlike any other I've ever had before in my life. From the beginning, the first like five pages, I was reading it and I turned to my spouse and said, I hate this. I don't like this book. I'm really sad. It's not what I thought it was. But that's because the book had to, I had to like, it was like a very cold ocean and I had to like get used to it. And then once I was in it, I just let the waves hit me and hit me. And it was the best experience. I don't under I don't think I understood anything that happened in this book and I don't care if pressed. I can't tell you what this book is about. I can't tell you it doesn't really have a plot. It kind of does. But it was just it was just re- unlike any other book I've read in a way that I really 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 enjoyed. Um I won't leave everyone hanging just because I can't summarize this book. Doesn't mean others haven't tried. Can I ask this- a question before you read the summary? Yes. What did it say on the blind date cover? Ooh, let me run and find that again. Catherine's leaving me again. (laughs) Where is the book? Because I was so enamored with the process of like this being such a good book find that I that I would not have known about otherwise. I have forever taped into the book. So this absolutely bizarre beauty stretches language in ways that left me giddy and in awe of the sheer madness of this author's mind. Reader beware of wind cults and Freudian relations on a silly little family farm in Ohio. Ooh, that does sound like uniquely your thing. Like that almost feels like kismet there's like yeah Catherine is going to be coming in here let's put this book and this description on it I mean wind cults I couldn't pass by wind cults and like stretching language so that is the subterranean recommendation I will read to you a fairly long description this is kind of the official goodreads summary so Ben Marcus's notable American women is a radical performance in American fiction It is too literary for the novel, as it is now practiced and consumed, I hate this, and too perverse for other plausible designations. In order to pioneer the Marcus Life Project, the writer provides a ferocious handbook which, followed to the letter, 
launches a permanent revolution of nothingness. A family of unprecedented persona, the Marcus is aided on the distaff side by Jane Dark, her listeners and scientists are brought forth to ensure the evolution of a new category. The writer fathers an extensive formal vocabulary to advance the behavior Bible's annihilating goals, including uncomely devices and strategies like the fainting tank, the thought rag, the shushing posture. It is killingly funny. It is a profound and profane description of our basis drive, fear. Notable American Women is the work of a retiring, albeit twisted virtuoso. What does it mean to be too perverse? Is that what it said? Too perverse for any of the other notable it's genres? Too, too perverse for other plausible designations. Other than novel. Like what designation? And yet it is too literary for the novel, which I don't agree with. How can a novel be too literary? Right. So, but, but I mean, like what other designations are there that it's too perverse to be? Like, I'm trying, I mean, like we're humans. We've we've used perverse we everything civet right butts. right <laughs> we were just talking about a perversity for civets yeah i don't know i don't know what this description means there are sections of it that definitely feel right um but it is very funny and very sad but yeah that's that so mm. the weird but it's such a weird it's just a deeply weird book and if you do read it which i i am going to recommend it just let it wash over you at my spouse read this book and I'm like this is the best thing I've ever read it's gonna blow your mind blah 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 blah. changed my life and he read it and he's like yes yeah, this is pretty good I was like what because if you what like hate you it about? then you could like have a debate but like if it's just like yeah yeah it's fine like yeah I've had he's that like, experience. Uh, yeah but this is my other weird thing he said he felt that way not because he didn't like it not because it wasn't excellent but he had read a different book by this author before. And because this author is so particular, that experience of how this author writes and how he makes you feel, he had already gone through. And I think with something so weird and new, that's a big part of it. Yeah. And so by round two, it doesn't have the same punch. Yeah. So we talked for a long time about this author's oeuvre, how there's weirder things, how there's more novelistic, actually narrative things. And this falls kind of directly in the middle and how lucky I was, he said, for this to have been my first book by this author, because it's his best book. And this idea, right, that kind of the first thing you read by someone or the first song you hear of a version of a song, that's often what you like best. You yeah. kind of say that sets the stage. And I just really, maybe this is boring and not so weird, but it made me kind of obsessive for a while over the order you read an author's oeuvre just totally changes your reception. Well, and we were talking books. we were talking about that with Station Eleven, right? Yes. That is the next note in my notes, which is we were talking <laughs> about Station Eleven because I read um I read Sea of Tranquil Tranquility and I loved it. And I knew you really liked Station Eleven. Everyone does. And I was kind of like, eh, it was okay. I I but I think it's because I've read you if had I already read felt that before. Smooth. Yeah. Yep. And so that's well, been on my mind a lot. My spouse and I are doing like a book club together where we're like, there are books that we have never read that we probably, you know, should read literary masterworks. So we've been reading like, um, well, we, he had never read Slaughterhouse-Five. So that was one we read. I reread. Um, I just reread it too for my students. It just, 
I, I was telling them, I was like, one of them has read it before and it's, it's a class of four students. Um, and so the other three are reading it for the first time. And I was like, man, I read it when I was about your age for the first time. And like, it hit me and it, it I really appreciated it. I'm like, but I missed so much that I just don't think you can get until you have more like no. life experience to be able. Cause, and I'm, I imagine, and, I'm, and I told them, I was like, I bet I'll read it. You know, if I make it to be old enough, I bet I'll read it at like, 70 or 80 and be like, wow, I missed so much when I read it at 40. Right. Because I think it just gets so much deeper. It, it's, yeah. it's so good. Although I will say Kurt Vonnegut, I don't think it really matters what order you read his stuff in, which I think is a real, it's a real feat. Yeah. I, when I, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about how to introduce students to him. And yeah. I do think that, um, the fact that so many read Harrison Bergeron as their very first introduction to him is a mistake. So I think that because I don't think tell. That, I don't think you understand the point of Harrison Bergeron if you don't know something about Kurt Vonnegut because it mm. has been. Did I talk about this on here already? It has been no. misread and misinterpreted um, as like a conservative libertarian like anti-equality movement because so for those of you who don't know i'm about to spoil the plot of harrison bergeron so harrison bergeron is a short story by kurt vonnegut in which there is this dystopic society that where everybody is equal and the way that they've made everybody equal is to bring them all down to the lowest common denominator so if you are very strong you have to carry around weights so that you can't move any faster or like with any more effort than other people have if you're very smart you have to wear ear devices that send like loud pinging noises and crashes in random intervals so you can't think um and so basically the people are useless because anything that made them have you know abilities has been stripped from them and it's all in the name of equality but of course not everybody is equal because somebody is overseeing this and that somebody has like guards and protection um and so the whole story is told from the point of view well a third person narrator telling you about a couple that is watching something unfold on the television and one of them has average intelligence which means that she's not smart enough to keep a thought in her head for longer than about 30 seconds and the other one is really smart but he has the thing crashing in his ear so he can't keep a thought in his head either and so they watch their son um Harrison Bergeron show up on television he is the most handicapped individual that he's described as like being nine feet tall and like just all these like superhuman abilities and he has all these handicaps on him that he rips off and like grabs a ballerina and rips off her handicap. the ballerina with the clown nose <laughs> yeah and they yeah. literally float to the ceiling together and do like this graceful dance and then the handicapper general the like authoritarian dictator in this society comes and shoots them both down with a shotgun and tells everybody else to get their handicaps back on and the parents who watch their son get killed can't remember it because that are handicapped in such a way and the world goes on um and so that when i was finding like articles and stuff to share with my students um there's a whole bunch of like right-wing websites that have been like this story is so good it's about the dangers of equality and the dangers of not letting people be individuals and um like i was like oh, have you read any kurt vonnegut because that is not what is going on here no. and um so I have a, he is a, not Ayn Rand, everyone. No, Stop. so yes, that was exactly where they were going with it. And so I have a student who, um, you know, is very 
socially liberal. And that was one of the first stories that we read. And I had warned them. Like I was, I had warned them that like, there's some interpretations of this story that we will talk about all the possible interpretations, but like, I don't want you to think it's that simple. Um, and she was like, I'm really glad that I read this in this class because I trusted you to give up. She's like, but if I, this is the first thing I'd ever read, I would never have read another thing that he wrote. Cause I was so mad. Like I was so mad at this, like, um, you know, what I thought was a real oversimplification of equality and um, an insult to, you know, the, all the work that people do in social justice movements. And so it was just really interesting. So yeah, that was one um, we read to the lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. And I haven't read anything by Virginia Woolf. I should have ages ago read a room of one's own, especially since I am like, I teach feminist theory all the time and I haven't read it. Or, but I felt really lucky that I had started with this book because it just hit me. And then I started it, speaking of ages, you read things that I read it right now at this age, because man, that book, I'm going to recommend that too. Hit hard. I read that at the wrong age. I read it when I was like 20 before I had kids. I don't even think I was married yet. I did not appreciate it at all. And I need to revisit it. But I wonder if like revisiting it will... I don't know if you can ever capture right? that. That's, that's I don't what I'm talking ever capture about. It again. That yeah. first read. And again, like, good job, Kurt Vonnegut, for making it a different experience that you can do. I know we've already talked forever for weird things, but since we have been not able to talk about books because they've been being saved for this conversation, I do want to talk a little bit about the tournament of books, which we were both yes. loosely following. Um, I did not, this was the most I've ever read. Uh, the tournament of books happens every March alongside March Madness for uh, college basketball. And much like March Madness, it has a bracket system in which uh, several books that came out, I guess, the previous year ish, like, I don't know if they have cutoffs like the Oscars do. It must yeah. be it. Yeah. So, um, and the books, the books range in, they're all fiction, right? But they range in kind of genre and style. Um, they all sort of have sort of a modern kind of edgy feel, I would say. And yeah. there's different judges each round and the judges have to explain how they decided between uh, the two books that they had to choose between and um, some of them create like brackets, like, like uh, rubrics that they use. And some of them are just like, I just picked the one I felt. And it's, it's kind of fun. I was rooting for, of the ones I had read, I was rooting for Sea of Tranquility, which made it Same. to the final, like last two, and then got knocked out by a zombie round that it had it had already beat yeah way back in round one and i it really upset me i didn't know i was a bracket purist um but i apparently am a bracket purist um and i just like i don't know brackets are always kind of artificial and arbitrary but once we've accepted the system it's the system yeah it's what you know it's one way of doing it it does cause like excitement and upsets and i think that's a plus but once it's done it's done it's done done. we have these zombie sleepers coming back in and taking out something that defeated it in round one Babel ended up winning which is on my list of books to read but i haven't did you read it no and my spouse who never does this stopped halfway through and said i can't i'm done yeah, I've so. heard I've heard mixed things from people that I respect quite a bit, so I'm I'm a little meh on it. But I, I will read it for myself. I will reserve judgment. 
Um, but one thing that I wanted to talk about was that some of the ones that I did read, I read Olga Dies Dreaming. Did you read that one? That was actually over Emily St. John Mandel, which was my second choice. I was rooting for that one, number one. I would have, I would have rooted for um, Olga Dies Dreaming, except, so the thing I really wanted to talk about was at the end of so many of these books that I read, just felt like, I was like, well, what happened? Did you, did you hit a deadline? Like what, like. The judging of that one, actually, (laughs) I was mad that it lost. But the judging of that said, it felt like a book that either needed to be much shorter or much longer. And I think they probably initially were, it was going to be just a huge book and they couldn't do that. I really loved that book. I was all in and I was, uh, I, I liked how beautifully flawed the characters were, but how I was still rooting for them. I liked the complexity. I cried at some of the discussions of like, there's this whole thing where like a mother has abandoned her now adult children because she's gone off to be an activist, but she's still like sending letters and trying to shape their lives from afar. And this, this discussion of like, what does it mean to be a mother? And what does it mean to like sacrifice for your family or sacrifice your family for the cause? Um, And just, there's very, very smart stuff going on, but the end felt like, you know those movies where like like the, <laughs> they like, like cross the stage at graduation and they but they put up the text this person did this yes no and this person did this like, yeah I was thinking about like Legally Blonde where at the end like the pause on someone's face and it's like Elle went on to become the top in her yeah. blah 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 Warner da, 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 da. and I was like whoa you've gave, given me all this complex writing you've built up all these interesting characters and you. I felt like you wrapped it up like that. Like, I felt like you wrapped it up with this like comedy trope of just like giving me the glimpse into the future of each person with no complexity. I don't, I, cause I, it would have been, it would have been my top choice too, if it had ended more, um, just better. Yeah. And I felt like I that, think I, that's fair. the, the rabbit hutch also, I was really like, okay, I'm with you. This is, this is doing really interesting work. And the end just felt like it just, fizzled like I I just was like oh I warned you okay yeah you did okay okay weird things that was weird things that was a lot Okay, what is your pop culture? My pop culture, I'll keep it fairly short, um, is just this discussion. So HBO and Warner Brothers and Discovery. Dis- I have trouble keeping track of who is who in all of this. Yeah. But oh, I- Discovery. or It's all owned by Disney or something. So Warner Brothers and HBO Max and Discovery have all merged. Mm. Um. Am I wrong about that? Because I did think no, Discovery no, was I Disney. Think no, I think you're right. Okay. Well, I will just look at it real quick. We're fact-checking. We are fact-checking. It's Discovery, yes. Yeah. So Warner Brothers Discovery merged with HBO Max, or I think bought HBO Max. I don't quite know exactly who is in charge or what the technical terms are but they're together now and um it it made people really mad because they made a lot of changes to um the h like what was what was streaming on hbo max including pulling Mm. a ton of children's content um like i think a lot of the uh because hbo max had all the sesame streets right and i think now they only have like a collection of the most popular ones and um no 
And they canceled some really popular, really good kids shows. And they were just like, well, we have to tighten our focus in order to make room for things. But now, I don't know if you saw, but HBO Max has been rebranded as of today, I think. Well, today when we're recording. Um, So as of like a week ago, for those of you listening, to just Max. And they took HBO out of it. So it's just Max. And it's not Max all capital. It's like capital M-A-X, like a name. So just Max. That's Um, so weird. Why? Why? And and the rebrand is focused on trying to get more family subscribers. So I am reading an article titled Warner Brothers Discovery Wants to Compete for Kids and Family and HBO Was in the Way by Lucas Manfredi. Um, I will put that in the uh, show notes. And so they're just talking about how the CEO, uh, who is David Zaslav, um, has been trying to save like the every I, all these giant media conglomerates are just flailing right now um, yeah. and have been for several years. And it, like, that's why we keep getting shows canceled and people are so frustrated all the time because they're trying to find a way to make streaming profitable and um, while, while still creating new content. And it just isn't working very well for most of them and so uh warner brothers discovery stock is down 46 percent from a year ago so they have a lot of pressure to like do well and so um this change is supposed to help them bring in new subscribers and they thought that hbo the hbo name was too edgy and associated with adult content and so that families wouldn't want to subscribe to it so now they're rebranding as just max and um They'll be bringing in like a lot of the Looney Tunes, Hanna-Barbera, DC Studios, all of that stuff is under the Warner Brothers thing. So they have some new content to bring in that way. Um, And a lot of their Discovery Plus content is like uh, educational videos. So they think that that could help bring in people who want their kids to have this educational content. But they said that they're up against, you know, it's kind of a real hard fight because Warner Brothers Discovery is competing with Disney Plus, which is the go-to for kids media streaming. Yeah. And Net- Netflix is actually still the top one. Um, one, they have some pretty good kid content. And two, they were just there first. So people know how to right. use it. And they actually think that part of it that makes Netflix so uh good is their interface is really easy to use. Yes. So Kids Have you can... ever tried to use Amazon Prime? Oh, Amazon, my gosh. There are shows I very much want to watch that I have not watched, even though I have Amazon Prime, because I just hate their interface so much. But Netflix is like, oh, yeah. Pop a button. Look at these pretty pictures of the faces of the characters, you know, click on one of them and we'll show you the shows. Right. Um, And like. As a parent who I think does a pretty good job of providing my kids with lots of enrichment that isn't screen-based, when I give them screen time, I don't want to be involved. I want them to go away and watch the screens and leave me alone. So (laughs) I do think that there's something. That's the point. (laughs) There's something to be said for like, yes, you can go manage this on your own, right? Um, And so, yeah, I just, my pop culture thing is that max is now the thing i'm a little worried a lot of the content that i liked on hbo max yeah, was what not about child- mom and dad when the kids are in bed what about right? that and i don't think they're removing that or taking away but like i i don't know like we watch our our flag means death is my daughter's favorite show like for a long time she just refused to watch any other television after season one ended she's like nothing will ever live up to it mom <laughs> 
I've been through it. <laughs> so um, it's so interesting, though, that you're saying like, yeah, Netflix, but Netflix is is also flailing, even though it's the biggest streaming. And it's so interesting that you're like streaming is flailing. And I am very excited. This is embarrassing. And so what? That um, Love is Blind has a new season and the finale is going to be a live event. On Netflix? On Netflix, which I am very excited to be like, what does that look like? And it's just interesting that like, yeah, streaming is like, oh, remember live television? Well, I see a pre-connection because remember how I talked about with the obsession, obsession, um, the idea of like, when this goes public, I want to be part of the public. Like I want to feel like we all know it at the same time. And that's what live events are for, right? Yeah. They were for a while, right? Um, We were having the musical live things and that was like the only live television, but we don't want that content. We want to watch the content we want to watch with the adrenaline rush or whatever, the communal feeling of liveness. So I almost made this my pop culture thing, but I didn't think I could make it long enough to justify it being its own. So I love that I get to tie it in here. I am in a Ted Lasso group on Facebook and to the new season of Ted Lasso, the final season has come out. Um, and there is intense heated debate on whether it is okay to discuss the episode after it has come out um or not in the group and so a lot of people it's are a now group about it though that should be a space you can so the two sides of it are this is really disrespectful at least put a spoiler warning and then like there's a debate about how good your spoiler warning has to be like do you have to make sure that none of the content shows so you have to put like a bunch of like emojis or whatever to make sure that it's hidden below the fold but then some people are still upset because it still pops up in their feed so then they see the comments before and that spoils things for them and then the other side of it is look it's a group about the show if you haven't watched it yet, just snooze the group and go back in and manually add it back to your feed after you've caught up. Um, and then people are like, well, you should at least give a 24-hour courtesy. And so there's just all these debates about, like, what is appropriate etiquette? And, you know, Ted Lasso is all about, like, kindness yeah. and treating each other well. And so then a lot of people on both sides call, like, you're not being very Ted Lasso right now, right? Like, <laughs> um, and I just, like, I don't. I haven't posted any spoilers. I don't participate as a like creator in that space very often. I mostly just, you know, like something now and then and enjoy reading it. Um, especially since it has turned into all these wild speculations about how the series is going to end. And I just don't care that much, but that's, I mean, I care how it ends. I just don't care about the speculation about how it ends yeah. and, but they're having fun and that's what the space is for. So I'm not going to go in and be like, stop doing this. <laughs> but I mean, I feel like, yeah, it's my responsibility to manage what spoilers I do and don't see. And I should assume that a group about that show is going to have spoilers about the show if it has already aired. Like, I think if people are posting things that they like found out by, you know, digging into like, some people are going like, I was watching so-and-so's Twitter feed and I saw this in the background. So I think that, and I'm like, that's a little much, but too much. But if you're just discussing the episode, that aired right after it aired like that seems like a reasonable thing to do yes, in a space on a board about it yeah. well let me ask you i'm glad you brought this up that is a space where i would expect spoilers fine but would you michelle expect spoilers for the episode that had just that week aired in the new york times Ooh. 
New York Times Magazine. I am so mad. I Yellow Jackets just started season oh, two. Oh, I just finished season one. Love. Don't know what I'm going to do about season two because, like, I don't want spoilers now. Because before, if I had seen spoilers, well, don't I, read the New York Times. Don't read the New York Times. Ah, <laughs> oh, the first it was in the New York Times magazine, and it was the first paragraph, just right off the bat. So I guess that's just a sign that our culture has shifted to where you assume that if somebody is consuming your media that is about something, you assume that they're already caught up, which again, again, pre-connection, right? This idea yeah. of like, when is information shared? You assume that everybody has the information that you have just because it's readily available doesn't mean that somebody has been able to access it because there's so many constraints to access, right? Like time and also just there's so much stuff out there that whether or not it comes across your limited window is no guarantee. And so I think that's really interesting. The- you should keep that in mind, especially with the grab bag Illinois campaign where he pretended to have more soldiers. And then the person was like, oh, where's the rest? So that knowledge. Yeah. I think yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. like assumption of shared knowledge feels like a a t- oh, it's gonna it's gonna fit my research thing too. Spoiler. Okay, cool. Okay, so <laughs> I'm glad I got to yell about the New York Times. Ready for my pop culture, which Your again I am pop culture. Um, I forgot what it was and it made me giggle. Uh so I watch The Bachelor and The Bachelor, and I do. I'm sorry. So it's well known that The Bachelor has a huge problem when it comes to rakes. Uh, yeah, recently, yeah. To I had to least. write some uh, ghostwriting articles about that, and then their fixes for it weren't usually very good. They were where you're headed. <laughs> I'm kind of headed there. Um, so like, yeah, the the longtime host. It's hard to unpack the Russian doll that is racism on The Bachelor because it's just baked into its core. Um, they hadn't the first black bachelor was 18 seasons and 25 years to get to and then when they had him the woman he chose they found pictures of her doing like black things. yes and none of these people are older than 27 what are they there's never an excuse for it but what the someone on this well i'll get to it so it has a huge race problem i won't go into all of that they fired the host the longtime host for inappropriate comments about race this season one of the finalists on this most current season who has to be like what 25 25 years old i think she was they also found photos on her social media of her in blackface what the fuck so during the finale they pulled her up on stage and but then they did something that they've never done before when they they always have the apology and tote people out. But then they did something they've never done before, which was they had her talk with the Bachelor's official DEI coach. And so they panned over. She's like, I had a long talk. I had many meetings and sessions with the DEI coach. They panned to her and the caption says, Dr. Kira Banks, Associate Professor, Psychology, St. Louis University. And I was so proud. <laughs> I don't know why my first thing was like, yeah, SLU. Michelle and I both went to SLU. I went for undergrad. You went for graduate school. And it's not a super well-known school. It's a small Jesuit college in Missouri. 
And so I was just thrilled. My pop culture thing. Is it the diversity coach on The Bachelor? Is a slew professor? And here's what made me laugh and laugh. Dr. Kara Banks, you would not know it except for that moment that they panned to her and put her name up because I went to her websites, all of them, her, you know, her slew website, her actual professional website. I learned a lot about her and I think we should know more about her. She's done a lot of great things. Um, she co-founded the Institute for Healing and Healing Justice and Equity at St. Louis University. Um, she also served as a racial equity consultant for the Ferguson Commission and continued as the racial equity catalyst for Forward Through Ferguson. But boy, um, she does not want the bachelor to intersect with her. Like, so she. So how did she end up in this role then? That's I fascinating. Know if she doesn't want it. And it's not that she doesn't want to be in media because she has a whole section on her website about media appearances, but The Bachelor was not on it. And it just really, really, I found it very, very interesting. Um, it's Me. not, I, I went so far as to find her CV and it's not on there. It is nowhere. You would never know it. I mean, what if this is like the pro, I mean, I, I hope she is getting paid. So not literally pro bono, but what if this is like, the, you know, I'm not going to count this for my professional <laughs> life. I just, they need it so badly and who's going to do it. And I'm just going to take one for the team and go try to make the bachelor not have this problem or start to actually unpack it. I like to think that she's like me and just, a huge fan of the bachelor but is embarrassed by that and she's like i got i can't watching can't be just watching this happen again and again i have to do something so, yeah, about it um shout out to st louis university that's a really fun yeah. pop shout out thing. to dr kira banks yeah. proud and happy. yeah that's really fun so oh but that's another pre-connection of knowledge about knowing not knowing i think there's something there so let's move on to research So my research thing is a bit disjointed, but it all should come together in the end. It's like a little mini agreement. Um, so <laughs> the our virus is alive. Whoa. Whoa. That's I was about to take a swig of water and that stopped me in my tracks. Um, our virus is alive. If you if I'm, you had to guess, what would you say? I'm trying to think back to like third grade or an organism is, I, of course, I'm going to say yes, that they're alive. So I saw a lot of pop quizzes this episode. It is. Um, I assumed that viruses were alive because we talk about killing them. And I didn't think you could talk about killing a thing unless it was alive. But there is huge debate in the scientific community on whether or not viruses are alive because there is huge debate on the definition of life. So, uh. um, so my research thing is this i'm going to i'm going to read from three different articles and kind of piece it all together so this is sort of the history of how scientists have viewed viruses in the 1700s which i think is when we were still like you know believed in humors or something no that probably wasn't that late but you know uh, i don't know that we should be taking our cues from what 1700s believed about life but in the 1700s viruses were believed to be poisons 
which we no longer believe. In the 1800s, they were called biological particles. And by the 1900s, they'd been demoted to inert chemicals. That quote is from um, a science news article called Are Viruses Alive, Not Alive, or Something in Between? And Why Does It Matter? by Megan Scutellari. So um, this is, I'm just going to read some quotes from this, not the whole thing. It's an interesting article. I hope you'll go read the whole thing. Um, but I did learn from this article that there are more than 120 definitions of life. I'm going to tell you more about that in a moment. So just hang on to that little tidbit that if you wanted You're to know what life was, 120 definitions of it. Uh, viruses have many traits of living things, including that they are made out of the same basic materials as a living thing. They do replicate and evolve. Once inside of a cell, viruses make the environment fit their needs, which is one of the other traits of living things is that they they change their environment. Um, and it is recently discovered that some viruses have genes for proteins used in metabolism which suggests that maybe they even metabolize which is ticks all the boxes of what yeah. we say for something that is alive but that it doesn't always meet that and there's there's lots of exceptions for like if this is our criteria for being alive most viruses only mark some of them and not all of them um so in 2004 there were vi virologists at the university university of strasbourg in france and at the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention, and they worked together and defined viruses as, quote, non-living infectious entities that can be said at best to lead a kind of borrowed life. And I was like, well, hell, isn't that all of us? Um, so <laughs> yeah. Maybe my humanities brain is not meant for this particular debate. <laughs> like, who is I it? This would be another Patreon. Michelle enters into non-humanities debates and tells everyone what's up. <laughs> Who isn't living a borrowed life? <laughs> like, I don't know. Um, in 2011, biologist Patrick Fortier said that viruses alternate between an inactive state when they are outside of a cell and a living metabolically active state when they're inside of a cell so that they are not alive when they're outside of a cell and alive when they're inside of a cell. I don't, I don't know how I feel like that. Um, so that would be more like a seed. But I, like, isn't a seed alive, even if it's in well, wheat? Well, if I asked you, is a seed alive, what would you I think I would say yes, because can't it? Well, but it's not doing the living things yet. It's like it's holding the potential for life. This feels dangerously close to some uh, conversations happening in the country yeah, right now. Yeah, yeah. And where uh, medications are now, the FDA yeah, is. no, for real. Take away FDA regulations. No, yeah. so, no, I would not say a seed is alive because it's not, it hasn't started, like, doing the living things yet. Because, yeah, you could swallow that seed and it it's not alive in your belly. Right. Um, in your, in your stomach. I think it has the potential for life. This so then, is very interesting. Um, and then there's also a brief mention in here, which I, if I were going to study this, this is the part I would be really interested in, is that we often personify viruses as villains and menaces that um, help us kind of think about, you know, fighting, especially this came out during the coronavirus, right? We fight them, we kill them, we have this defense, it's all very military. Um, but there's a quote here from Colin Hill 
from, he's an infectious disease specialist at the University at Clark Cork in Ireland. And he said, viruses and their prey are not fighting, they're dancing. And so that we're not perceiving that, like by not perceiving them accurately, we're not conceiving of the right kinds of defenses mm. and that the, if we used a better metaphor for it. And also, um, viruses are really important to our existence so this is i hadn't really thought about this i guess i knew it in some way like i had read it before but hadn't really like taken what that meant into my mind um so across the globe viruses don't just infect cells they leave behind genetic material viral dna is transmitted not only from one viral particle to its progeny but also to other viruses and other species because of this Viral genetic sequences have permanently taken up residence in the genomes of all organisms, including ours, and we rely on them. Viral DNA is required for the formation of the mammalian placenta, which we've talked about a lot because we talked about how the placenta is not actually there to protect the baby, but it is there to protect the mother and like the, yeah. yeah. And so like viral DNA is required for mammalian placenta to form. Um, it's crucial in the growth of early embryos, and the human innate immune system is made up in part of ancient viral proteins. So we are calling upon viruses that are in us anytime we are fighting off something else. So like without those existing viruses, we wouldn't, have, I mean, we, we wouldn't exist to begin with because there would be no mammalian placenta. Um, so yeah, I that was my first piece of this. So then I was like, well, I have to go look at these 120 definitions of life. And I did not read this entire thing because it is very long. I am going to look through it more closely and I'm going to share it with you all because I hope that you will look closely through it too. This is called The Vocabulary of Definitions of Life Suggests a Definition by Edward N. Trifonov. And um, so this is their description of what they're trying to do here. So there's over 100 definitions of life exist in fact, 120 something. And the definitions are more than often in conflict with one another. Undeniably, however, most of them do have a point, one or another or several, and common sense suggests that probably one could arrive to a consensus if only the authors, some two centuries apart from one another, could be brought together. One thing, however, can be done, sort of voting in absentia, asking which terms in the definitions are the most frequent and thus perhaps reflecting the most important points shared by many. Such analysis is offered below, revealing those most frequent terms that may be used for tentative formulation of the consensus. And I'm not going to read this whole long, complicated article to you, but I did want to just tell you about some of the groups of words that they found that have the most similarity in all of these multiple definitions of life. So they put them into categories of life, systems, matter, chemical, complexity, reproduction, evolution, environment, energy, and ability. And I'm going to give you the top word in each one of those. The top word in um, life is living, which I feel like is cheating a little okay. bit. Okay. <laughs> Unhelpful tautology. The, t- the top one in system is systems, followed by organization. Okay. Um, matter is organic. Chemical okay. is process. Complexity <laughs> is information. Reproduction is reproduce. Evolution is evolve, environment is external, energy is force, and ability is able. And so they're going through and trying to find like a a definition of this. One of them they suggest is one possibility 
this is hard to read out loud, but thus the consensus of the life definition patched from these nine definitia would be life is, and then in brackets, system, matter, chemical, complexity, reproduction, evolution, environment, energy, ability, where the square brackets correspond to some compact expression containing the words listed within. For example, so it's basically like a, a really um, nuanced, or really like narrow parameters for a Mad Lib, right? Uh, <laughs> Life is metabolizing material informational system with ability of self-reproduction with changes which requires energy and suitable environment. So you can just pick any one of those frequent words and plug them into it's a corresponding place and create yourself a definition of life. And then there's, I guess, fewer than 123 or whatever if you do it that way. So you narrow it down some. Um, wow. Are, are we even living? I don't right. feel organized or structured. I understand um, what it means, but. Here's one that's just that to be consistent with Darwin's views. Life is self-reproduction with variations. In which case then viruses would definitely be alive, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It seems like they tick. What boxes are they not ticking? Is it just the like when they're not mostly me metabolism? So I was thinking about, you know, I'm teaching science to my first grader as a homeschooling mom. And um, one of the videos that we watched was by like, what is a living thing? And their definition was a living thing must grow. A living thing must metabolize. I mean, they didn't use the word metabolize, but must, must take in nutrients. So must grow, must take in nutrients, must reproduce, and must... I think there was a separate video about how living things change their environment. So I think it was just like grow, take in nutrients and reproduce were the components that were required for living things in that kindergarten friendly definition or first grade friendly definition. Um, and I mean, I'm like, sounds like you're doing as well as anyone yeah. else, right? Across <laughs> centuries of scientific research. Yeah. Which then brings me to my final thing I want to tell you about, which you may have heard about before. Have you heard the thing that, like, everything is fish? That sounds familiar. So, but I, but I don't know why. So there are a group of scientists that want that argue that the scientific classification system is broken and that species should be based on clades. They're called cladist. A clade is, as this article says, uh, this is from Nature. Actually, there's no such thing as a fish, says Cladist. Um, a clade is a fancy term for all of and only the modern species descended via evolution from a specific common ancestor. So I guess you have to be able to trace it back to one common ancestor. So if you added your father in, that's not the yeah, one. Yeah, that's okay. not the one. It has to have one starting point. So um, Michelle, I yes. apologize in advance. Are people learning to follow this methodology and believe in this acaclades <laughs> ah sorry. sorry that that term is not in the article but we could certainly try to make it happen i'm gonna make acaclade <laughs> a thing yeah so um all life evolved out of the water reptiles mammals birds everything came from something that we would say is a fish Oh, okay. I, yeah. So there's more diversity among what we call fish today 
than there is in most of those subgroups. And so they would say that either everything is a fish or nothing is a fish. <laughs> and that the designation of fish is just not useful because it's there's like birds that are closer to fish evolution, like a particular species of fish evolutionarily than another fish would yeah. be. And so like what are fish to a fish? Yeah. Ooh. Um, so for Cletus, either there is no such thing as a fish or we too are fish. That's no such thing as a fish. That's why it sounds familiar. That's an excellent podcast. No such thing as a fish. So that is my somewhat harried and messy research. Oh, mine, mine is also very messy and totally peters out. It just goes... And then there's same. and there's some things to think about. Well, apparently but... you can compete in the tournament of books if that's how you do. <laughs> My ending's bad. And this is okay. I'm going to start this with some warnings of that I'm going to discuss violent like violent acts. I'm going to discuss police violence, and I'm going to discuss um, mass shootings. So, warning: this is a downer topic. But I read an article many weeks ago, around March 21st, this article came out, and I just wanted to talk about it. So I tried to fit it into research because it's not weird and it's not pop culture. So my research comes directly and is mainly from an excellent, excellent article in The Intercept um, by Trevor Aronson called The Honey Trap. The FBI used an undercover cop with pink hair to spy on activists and manufacture crimes. Have you read this? No. It's so good. I'm going to link it. Go read it. It's better than everything that's about to happen with me trying to summarize it and do research. But basically, this article is about events happening between the summer of 2020 through 2022. And that date, 2022, becomes very important because this article talks in depth about other FBI investigations that were opened, but not followed and were shut in order to pursue this case I'm about to talk about and it's upsetting but it takes place in Colorado Springs which is where I lived the past few years and it's a city I love very much Colorado Springs is both deeply conservative it has focus on the family it has you know big air force center big military base um but it is also it also has the most guns per capita in the U.S. But it also is deeply, deeply left-wing. And this encapsulates that so well. In Colorado Springs, Colorado, from summer of 2020 through 2022, the FBI tried to infiltrate. It was a socialist group in Colorado Springs. And basically, The Intercept, again, does a much better job. But basically, someone during the 2020 protest, a protester... Jacqueline Armanderas Unzuita, who's an activist and Colorado-based staffer for the U.S. Senator Michael Bennett. Um, she was walking her bike and she came across a peaceful protest, which was really more of a parade. And there were policemen just running at these people. She had her bike. She freaked out because a policeman was running right at her and she threw her bike down. And the police charged her with assault. And so in that case, she asked for all the records from body cameras and things. 
And she found from that documentation what opened up this whole case. Basically, it began with the body cam footage. There's a policeman who is sitting in the car waiting for this event to happen and pulls out a report, a SOMEX report, which stands for Social Media Exploitation, full of pictures of people. And so the footage, as this goes on, the police officer focuses on one photo of a man named John John Christensen, and he says, that's a professor, boot to the face, going to happen. And it did. They then got out of the car and started just terrorizing and beating these activists and protesters. I mean, how is, brings- how is that not just mob violence? I mean, that's, that's just the mob, yeah. right? Like, yeah. that, like what? This is happening. And basically, people are wondering, how are they getting, what, why are these names here? Who, how do they know people? And so the whole article, it turns out that there is a center called the Chinook Center in Colorado Springs, which is there to help people it helps people with home ownership with rent it is a offshoot and part of the socialist clubs in colorado springs because there are a lot of socialist clubs there and so basically the police were trying to formulate crimes against this socialist group the democratic socialists of colorado springs and they infiltrated them they put in undercover policemen this person with pink hair and did everything they could to get people to try to commit crimes. They would say, Oh, we need to be more violent. You need to go buy guns for me. And no one took the bait. Absolutely. No one took the bait. It was a total flop. Go read the article. The details are very interesting, but I do want to say they're, they're beating people. They're terrorizing people. They are, you know, trying to entrap them. And a few months after this happens um, in November of 20, because this happens over two years that they're infiltrating this group, a lot of time, a lot of resources. They had also in this time period opened an investigation on someone else and closed it because it was unwarranted. And that investigation was on, um, Anderson Lee Aldrich, who, and I'm sorry that I'm not saying this well, because this happened when I was in Colorado Springs, it happened to a lot of people I know and a lot of friends, um, was the shooter at Club Q, which is an, which is an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs. It's the only one and killed five people. And that's who they were investigating and said, not worth our time. And so I just we need want- to, We need to spend more time trying to get people to buy guns who don't want to buy guns. Right. And so- I just want to read kind of how this article ends, which is as the federal agents gave the future mass shooter a pass, the FBI, with the help of a pink haired undercover cop, aggressively targeted local political activists seeking affordable housing and police accountability. And that's what happened. So my research, why is this research? I'm not going to read the article. You should go read it, was to look into the socialist clubs in Colorado Springs. First off, because when trying to find this article, I saw in local newspapers in Colorado Springs, this happened in 2017 too. These groups were infiltrated by undercover cops in 2017 and they found nothing. So they keep doing this. This has been happening for over six years. And I'm interested in this group for many reasons. The Chinook Center does excellent work. 
But when I heard Socialist Club, it kind of made my ears perk because I had direct experience with them um, and learned that it was the biggest socialist club in the country at one point in Colorado Springs, which is a small place. I learned about the group because they sent out an email there um, at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, the or representation on campus. Sent out a request to raise funds so that they could bring Boots Riley to campus for a screening of Sorry to Bother You and a talk by him. They successfully did. And I was very new to the job and it was one of the highlights of my whole time there. I remember. I remember you yeah, telling me about I'm it when so it happened. Excited. Yeah. And it was so great. And he came to talk in part because it's such a giant socialist club. So I wanted to learn all my research idea was I, this group who is so so just terrorized by the police who do such good things in the community what is the history of them now because they were the biggest group i thought they would have a very long and storied history but i was surprised to learn that it first developed as a marxist reading group in 2016 so not very old um and then one year later they're getting infiltrated by the fbi so, so wait it was a book club and then the FBI was like book club to send people into this book oh my goodness and I will say I didn't know the history or stories of this but at the sorry to bother you screening on campus there were FBI agents there there was a big show of force of police and FBI agents and it just was like what's going on but that's what this is so it's the CSS Colorado Springs Socialists founded as a Marxist reading group in 2016 and then formally developed into a political organization in 2017. And by late 2018, the group exceeded 100 members and was operating on two university campuses and in the city of Pueblo as an extension group. And so between 2017 and 2020, they grew to be the second largest socialist organization in the country, despite Colorado Springs being named the sixth most conservative city in the U.S., so again, that's just yeah, Colorado really. Springs in a nutshell. Um, and every time I tell someone, oh, I loved living there or I miss it, they're like, oh, it's so conservative. Are you? And I'm like, no, there's this whole underbelly that people should know about. So the Colorado Springs Socialist was an organization that holds the position that capitalism must be abolished and replaced with a socialist-based political and economic structure. They took non-tendency position on Marxism and socialism, and they accepted all groups, right? Democratic socialists, anarchists, libertarian socialists, left communists, Maoists, Trotskyists, the list goes on and on. So it was a bunch of smaller groups linked together so under this kind of the, like big tent yeah. philosophy. Yeah. For people who want to do away with capitalism. So in January of 2020, the group announced on their Facebook page that they would be dissolving. And so they had a short lived four year trajectory. They aren't going away, but they merged into the Democratic Socialists Association. And that's what 2020 to 22 was the group being terrorized, but it's the same group. They just went under a bigger umbrella. So that's the DSA. And I said, well, the research is only four years. That kind of peters out. Let's look into the history of the DSA. The DSA, if you would like to know, was founded in 1982. That it is like. Colorado Springs or as a no period as an exist the, okay the Democratic Socialist Alliance okay it too as most movements are was many little teenier right. groups 
coming together. It's kind of and, like the question of, is it alive or not? Right. Like, right. are you this thing or not? Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. When do you become something that has a Wikipedia page right. basically for this? So it's not an official political party, but it does have many notable members of Congress. I was very interested to learn how many people in Congress are like, I am a member of the DSA. And they include, but not in, not limited to, John Connors, House of, Represent- House of Representatives from Michigan, Ron Dellums, which is unsurprising to me. He's from California and the mayor of Oakland. Senator Julie Gonzalez from Colorado, yay Colorado. Rashida Tlaib, U.S. House Rep, Michigan, AOC. AOC is a member of the DSA. And whoop, whoop, Cory Bush from Hi, first first congressional district. Woo woo. I was very excited to see Cory Bush's name there. But that was that's my long and meandering uh research. And I'm just gonna end it with go read read the article. I just yeah, basically what I wanted to do was just like read the article to everyone. It goes in such depth. It's so fascinating. I just kept thinking as you were describing what was happening, I just kept thinking about um, Judas and the Black Messiah, which was oh, a film yeah. that's just, I cannot oh. shake it. It's just so, and like, I think when we talk about that, we we talk about it like it was some ancient history, like, wasn't it so bad that the, the FBI was doing all these terrible things as if it just ended, right? As if like, you know, COINTELPRO right. went away and like, like you know, that's- yeah. I think that's why I also wanted to share. Yeah, I think there's a thought maybe with the internet and people talk about slacktivism that leaders in communities that can actually do good and actually change exist less and less. And it goes to show how much good they're doing if the because the FBI wants to end it. Yeah. And I mean, but, if the FBI is trying to infiltrate your book clubs, like, I mean, it also just says something about the power of like, people coming together and exploring ideas and questioning how to make a better world right like that those who have the status quo are like no you can't go read books together like that is you're dangerous if you are getting together and figuring out these ideas and trying to make rent affordable for your neighbors and just these things are true we know they're alive in the world but there is something about reading that they especially wanted to kick professors faces in in that city when I was one for so long I went to most of those protests it's yeah no like all this talk about like banning books and banning uh you mentioned the DEI person uh like DEI is being banned as like you can't even say the words and was it you like they were collecting like lists of anybody who had had DEI training at at my spouse's university they wanted a list of anyone who ever led or took part in DEI training which which was required yeah I mean for like it has been an important initiative so like I mean there was a lot of onboarding training as you got hired you do this training as well you should um and just it's it's a terrifying time and i think that there is this tendency to be like banning books like look at the world we're in you can't ban information you can't like it's it's so free and available which i really do think fits with our pre-connections that we've been doing is that like no just because information exists does not mean that you can access it in fact over flooding you with too much information is one of the best tactics to prevent you from being able to really receive 
the information that you need. Yeah. I mean, you that's part of the reason yeah. why we're only learning about, right, perfume and tigers now. There's so much to learn every day and things find their time and place with fun, like animal facts. But with this, I don't know what to say. I'm, yeah. Well, we've got to find out what to say because it okay. is fortune cookie time. Should we Let recap? Us. Oh, we have to recap. It's been so long. <laughs> okay. All right. We started with our grab bag. Yes, about the Illinois campaign and about George Rogers Clark. Yes, and Cascassia, which is in Missouri, but it's not in Missouri, but and it is in Illinois. I think we could say, like, some of that, especially from our not so great pop quiz performance, it's also about just like common knowledge not being true, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then my weird thing was Tiger's obsession with obsession. <laughs> I'm sorry. I love it. My weird thing was um, Ben Marcus's notable American women and just that it's interesting how much the order of consumption affects how we feel about books and other media. My pop culture thing was HBO Max turning into Max to try to get more families to sign up. And my pop culture thing was that the bachelor's DEI coach is a professor at St. Louis University who is hiding that fact. And my research thing is that we cannot agree as a collective of experts whether viruses or alive are alive or even on what the definition of life is. And my research was about the Colorado Springs Socialists, now DSA. And again, I'll put in the show notes, but really about the article by Trevor Aronson in The Intercept. All right. Well, okay. so there's definitely something about knowledge, assumed knowledge protected or hidden knowledge um i think there's something to be said about how the assumption of knowledge does hide knowledge often yeah the assumption of knowledge hides knowledge yeah how too much knowledge is the same as not enough knowledge yeah yeah in i mean in practice right like in practical effect being flooded with so much knowledge that you can't take it in makes you focus in on such a narrow band that you may end up even knowing less than you would have if there had been less available to begin with. Yeah. Because that fits with like the definition of life. If you have 120 definitions of life, you, you are going to be so lost. Yeah. You're like, what difference does it make? I can make up my own, right? When there is there are answers, right? There are, and, and they have real impacts as we were just talking about yeah. with the legal challenges to, you know, the FDA's approval of medications. And um, so to just kind of be like, oh, well, there's so much out there. We can just pick and choose whatever works for us in this particular moment is worse than not having the knowledge to begin with, I would almost argue, right? Like, to be able to say there's just so much that I don't have a responsibility to hunt for a consensus is a cop-out. Yeah. So everything fits with that, right? Yeah. Let's go down the list. The the pop quiz about Cascassia and the Mississippi, obviously. Um, your weird thing, yes. My weird thing, yes. 
HBO Max turning into Max is all about trying to curate content so that people, so they can control who gets to see what. But also they have so much content that they own that they have to erase some of it, yeah. right? Yeah, they have They're to make literally that removing, away. yeah. And yeah, the, the DEI coach kind of not advertising that information and obviously both of our research fits. So what do we want to act? This feels... I just, I think this is so accurate, but it also is so tricky because like to put this in a concise thing to be like knowledge is bad or too much knowledge is bad. Right. How do we sum this up? I mean, so I think that it is about the responsibility of when you are faced with conflicting information, you don't get to just say, oh, well, then it doesn't matter. Right. You don't get to just say, oh, well, it's too much for any one person to figure out. So I don't have a responsibility to use it at all I can ignore it I can just pick and choose um because I think that's what you get if you're just like too much knowledge is bad it's like giving you an excuse to avoid having to be informed or having to make um you know accurate and meaningful decisions so it leads when you have so much knowledge it leads to the ability to do very paranoid readings of things and we're just awash with conspiracy theories these days and everyone Instead of saying you're right or wrong, you just say do the research. Yeah. That very much. It's this flood of you can you can you can find whatever you want. You can tell yourself whatever story you want with the information at hand because there is so much. So maybe it's something like if you're only hearing your own story, blah, blah, blah. Like do something like some sort of instruction, right? Or if you're only hearing one story or if you're but only we're hearing too many stories is yeah. part of the problem. Yeah. I was going to be dumb and be like, too much is sometimes enough. Too much is always enough. Or maybe just too much is never enough. But too also much is it never is... enough. Because it's not enough to just, okay, I think what it is, is it's not enough to just have it. You have to, it is the, the part, the piece that's missing is the critical thinking work of reaching, if not consensus, at least I mean, it's agonism, right? It's we're missing agonism. Can 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 the fortune cookie just say it's agonism? Right? It's agonism, right? (laughs) That's what it says. It's agonism, right? Question mark. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I will always say yes to that as uh, my agonist soapbox, but I don't know how you feel about it. (laughs) I like it. Um, I like it because. It doesn't say like too much knowledge. Too much is knowledge bad. is bad. Too much is never enough. Doesn't it doesn't get to the heart of it? It's agonism, right? Yeah, yeah. Because for those of you who don't know, yeah. for those of you who have not read my dissertation, what's wrong with you? You're missing out. Um, so agonistic <laughs> rhetoric comes from the so the ancient Greek concept of the agon, which is where like. Uh, conflicts took place especially like wrestling matches deborah hockey writes a lot about this um and agonistic rhetoric is the idea that there is um transformation in a debate on both sides and so um we often Mm. see antagonistic rhetoric which is just you know like i like to think of it as like the cnn cnn talking heads when they bring on people from different sides and they just scream at each other and no one's listening to anybody and nobody leaves better informed or with a deeper understanding whoever yelled the loudest thinks that they've won um 
we don't want that. That's antagonistic rhetoric. It's not very useful. And then the answer to that has often been irenic rhetoric, which has been especially popular in feminist spaces. And it's very communal rhetoric. Um, it's, you know, very much like everybody shares their ideas. There's a lot of rules to keep this, this space safe so that people feel like they are able to share and um, get their ideas out. But there's not much tension allowed and in fact ironic spaces that are too focused on remaining ironic end up becoming kind of enclaves that um that kind of boot out people either directly like you have to leave because you don't fit what we want or that people just don't feel comfortable there anymore because the safe space is so closely defined to keep rhetoric within one little sphere and this i mean we've all seen this happen like i've seen groups split and splinter over like what is seemingly ridiculous like I, I was just talking about this ted lasso thing right yeah i could see this becoming two separate groups the spoiler free ted lasso the spoiler filled ted lasso and like everybody just having to go to their own facebook group and then we miss out on that conversation with each of those people because we end up in separate spaces right and like you could see this happen in any community that you get people together if there's enough tension between that space and there isn't a way to deal with it they just split and if you are if you're trying to maintain an ironic space you can't have a a large and complex one which i think is what we're talking about here right if you want large and complex ideas you have to have an agonistic framework in which to deal with the conflicts that are going to arise or you're going to end up in antagonistic screaming matches or you're just going to block yourself into a little circle and be like i just am not going to look at anything else is there do we want to stick with antagonism, right? Or is there something with like wrestling is tiring, but, or like something about wrestling with knowledge or no? Maybe. Wrestling with knowledge is tiring. I feel like the wrestling metaphor has like. Legs. Ha ha. Ha ha ha. <laughs> I was going to say winners and losers. And I don't know about that. Like, like if you don't wrestle with knowledge, you can't win, but I, uh, yeah, I don't winning. think it's winning. Yeah. It's, it's like, you'll never get stronger, right? If you don't wrestle with knowledge, you stay weak. It's still kind of like it's agonism, right? Yeah. I think we should stick with that. It's agonism, right? It's agonism, right? <laughs> I think that was our fastest fortune cookie and our slowest everything else. <laughs> yeah. Which but... probably is related, so yeah yeah but it really it was a lot to digest this time so i feel like that needs to just be a little after dinner mint not not we don't need a cheese plate after all that here's your andy's mint you get at the olive garden with your check you're out it's agonism right right? well okay well that's it um I'm going to see Michelle tomorrow. I'm yes. so excited. By the time you hear this, we will have already seen each other. Well, if already our whole trip will be over. Oh, look how time us. works. Look how time works digitally. Sad. We've had a great trip and we miss each other already. I miss already. you, Michelle. I, I miss, miss you, you so too. Much. I had such okay. a good time. It was great. It was where you got a lot of work done. We had a lot of saw fun. a great play. Bye. <laughs> We'll be right back.